talking about Roll Tide and Steve Zahn's on the sub, I was like, oh no, this is Brandon's favorite movie. <laughs> Welcome to episode of Center Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Center Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. But we also like discussing how a director can be a genre in themselves. Um, so for June, we were talking about the filmography of the one and only Tony Scott, a man who directed a variety of genres, uh, films for a variety of genres. But also, they always had that Tony Scott stamp. But before we go on the day's batch of Tony Scott films, Thomas, can you give everyone a recap on what we talked about last week? Yeah, we talked about kind of Tony Scott's background coming up very similarly to his brother through um, art school and and then advertising. Um, and then we talked about his earliest film, Hunger, kind of being a very extremely stylistic film, very much a film of the early MTV days. and being not very commercially successful, but him getting another shot at it and making Top Gun, which was just like ridiculously commercially successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and basically a feature length commercial for the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, we, we talked about uh, his other two films in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, Brown Hills Cop 2. Revenge. And, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop 2 and yeah, Revenge. Beverly, Beverly Hills Cop 2 which he kind of took that that franchise and, and spun it a little bit more action heavy mm-hmm. and then revenge which was his uh maybe his most divisive film yeah because <laughs> uh, we, we talked we talked last week about some people who loved that movie I, it might come back up again this week about some people who love that movie and uh i think you and i were not super into it yeah so. I, I was more into it than you were and it's yeah. one i would i would i'd be interested in seeing what the longer version would be i i will say there's there might be something that comes into play with rye i don't know this for sure but I think there's a reason why revenge was kind of i won't say rushed but i think tony might have been involved in something else at that time that prompted him not yeah. to be as involved in the editing which may be why there's kind of there's like a the producer's cut and then the director's cut but we'll hmm. go into that in, in a little bit yeah we kind of we talked about kind of his fashion his fast paced editing, his uh, very distinctive uh, filtering style. He, he likes to do these kind of split filters on his camera where the, it makes the sky like orange and it makes the, you know, uh, you know, two of his films were set in California. So you get a lot of like orange skies and, and blue ocean yeah. or orange skies and green grass, um, kind of very hypersaturated and just very, when you, when you think kind of like late eighties, 90s action i think tony scott i think a lot of people think of tony scott's kind of style the way he he shoots like a a shootout or just you know tough guys driving (laughs) cars uh or or flying jets or riding motorcycles or whatever uh cool method of transportation (laughs) they prefer or in a submarine you know that's 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 what i think very cool yeah and, and the big thing that we kind of established last week was the beginnings of the jerry bruckheimer and don simpson relationship because bruckheimer and simpson had seen the hunger and had seen tony scott's commercial work and and music videos and they kind of 
plucked him out to do Top Gun because one of his or one of his commercials dealt with a fighter jet in it for a car commercial, and that's kind of how I got the job with Top Gun because he was the only director who had like used a a jet in something of late, and so he kind of had an idea of how to shoot it, and that really set the course for the rest of the eighties in terms of action films and also kind of the i would almost say like the high concept like per like producer driven movie and we'll get into this with days of thunder which is our first one up today mm-hmm. um is that they're very producer driven and bruckheimer was kind of the guy i think i read they took out an ad right before top gun of like jerry bruckheimer and don simpson are real filmmakers we we we're here from development to the premiere or from the premise to the premiere is what it said like like <laughs> this is who we are and it, it's gonna come in a peak in days of thunder because top gun was so huge with for them and and and, and i really think anything after that that bruckheimer does is them trying to capture what they had with tony scott so like we'll and, mm. and I'll we'll get this at the end because I I kind of want to pitch my I'll I'll plant it here my I, my my concept of the Tony Scott coaching tree um, mm. because when looking at especially this period because this period that we're talking about today I'm not gonna say I don't want to tip my hand with anything but I'm not gonna say it's there's the best film in this bunch or maybe there is depending on who you are um, but it's I think it's the one bunch of films that Scott did that I think across the board are probably, it's probably his best era, if that makes sense. Like I've, I've, I've got a, I, I had something I wanted to, to a question I wanted to pose okay. you to start this Go episode ahead. off. Ask it. We talked last week about how kind of the lasting legacy, like you said something about some people only know Tony Scott as, as Ridley Scott's mm-hmm. brother. And Ridley Scott obviously had a very strong late seventies, early eighties. But my question is, did Tony Scott have a stronger nineties? It's a good question. Than Ridley Scott did. Ridley Scott had Thelma and Louise. Yes, which obviously yeah, great movie. Big film, yeah. But he went into the nineties with Black Rain, nineteen eighty nine. Not a huge success. I like it, but yes, I, I understand. Thelma and Louise, obviously yep. great movie. Fourteen ninety two Conquest of Paradise, giant money um, loss. Oh, hands down, Tony Scott. And then uh, White Squall, which is faded to obscurity with everyone except for the QAnon crowd, uh, because that is weirdly a. <laughs> movie that they're super into is it uh, yeah that's where um all right we're gonna go into conspiracy theory real quick the, <laughs> the q anon catchphrase um where we go one we go all is a quote from the movie white squall well yeah. learn something new every day <laughs> and then he capped off the 90s with gi jane yeah and then uh 2000 he hits with gladiator and obviously has this huge kind of comeback yeah but um yeah i think when we when we talk about kind of tony being in ridley's shadow i feel like ridley spent a decade in tony's shadow and some of these movies kind of feel like he's trying to make a, a tony scott movie oh yeah uh i mean i feel like gi jane could be that where it's i yeah. mean it's it's this idea of like the premise as we talked about with this Bruckheimer stuff it's like what's the premise of the movie it's like it's a female soldier and she's going through base camp and or a base makes a training and all that stuff and as a mm-hmm. navy seal also you know who's in it with her Viggo mortensen who's yep. in crimson tide for tony scott yeah i mean just looking at it, it's like he only made uh, he he makes black rain 89 down on louise 91 they just said, like it's he only makes like five movies and then compared to scott it's days of thunder last boy scout true romance crimson tide the fan Emmy the state spy game uh, a, a, 
I'm not Spy Games. Spy Games 2001. But one, two, three, four, five, six films compared to Tony's like four films. I mean, really four films. I would I would say yeah. I would say Tony has the better 90s. And that's a good thing that the I mean that's a good question to start with because I think as we as I said like yeah, he gets kind of overshadowed because Ridley I think I think cuz cuz of Gladiator and Blade Runner and Alien are the three movies that just they overshadow Tony is kind of the mm-hmm. thing. Cuz Tony said he's like yeah, Ridley releases Alien or Blade Runner and there are like they're immediately considered classics uh of cinema. Yeah. And he's like, I don't really have that film. I don't really have those films. Uh, but maybe one day I will. And I guess that's what we're trying to prove here, I guess, is that, yeah, <laughs> I think he does. I think he does have those films. They're just not as talked about. So to go into that, let's let's jump into his 90s. So Revenge was technically the first movie he made in the 90s. Came out in February 1990. The next film, however, is Days of Thunder. And that comes out in june of 1990 so we don't tend to i don't tend to go fully in depth with like how a movie got made on these director episodes but for this one i am (laughs) (laughs) because i don't know if you know much about this thomas but it's a it's a crazy kind of uh backstory so for those don't know days of thunder is about a young hotshot race race car driver by the name of cole trickle played by tom cruise and cole is a California guy who comes down south to race in NASCAR and he's going to be the new driver for a new team owned by Randy Quaid and Cole is paired with this grizzled and experienced crew chief Harry Hogue played by Robert Duvall who has been away from NASCAR for a bit after a year because of a a, a, a bad race car accident that caused his driver to, to, to die in a, in a massive accident and Duvall, Harry has kind of stepped away and not be investigated. And he's being brought back in to mentor this young, young California race car driver. And at first the two do not hit it off, but soon enough, this unlikely pair end up becoming the core of a winning race team. So how did this get made? The <laughs> idea of days of thunder was actually conceived by Tom Cruise. One day he was allowed to test test a race car along with his color of money co-star Paul Newman. And Cruz allegedly reached speeds of a hundred and eighty miles per hour. And he was just like, I gotta gotta make a movie about this. What an influential day in cinema. Cars those two men drive cars (laughs) and which would lead us to Days of Thunder and Pixar's cars. (laughs) Exactly. It's (laughs) it's crazy. Um so yeah, Cruz was like, I love this. I want to make a movie about this. And the film is actually the only film as of now that Cruz has received official writing credit for because he receives a story by credit along with the film's lead screenwriter, Robert Town. God, give, give Tom Cruise a a writing credit for being like, yeah, I'll jump out of a plane for mission. Impossible. (laughs) Let's do it. Because yeah, a lot of that stuff I think is based around. He's like, yeah, I've always wanted to do a stunt like this. And they're like, okay, we'll put it in the new script. I think he's he's allegedly going to get credit for that SpaceX movie if it ever happens when he goes into space. Oh, okay. It's like it's his like idea by Tom Cruise. But yeah, so he gets story by credit. Interesting enough, I will say this. Previously, Tony Scott did another movie that had story by credit from the star, and that was Beverly Hills Cop 2. Because mm. that was conceived by uh, Eddie Murphy. So Days of Thunder reunites the team of Cruise, Scott, and the producing duo of Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson. And as I said, the making of this film sounds insane. 
Um, it seems like everyone was under immense pressure to live up to the success of Top Gun. Uh, but also it seems it's kind of the peak of excess and maybe drug addiction for producer Don Simpson. Uh, the film apparently had several delays and went massively over budget. Uh, in Daytona, where they shot some of the film, Simpson and Bruckheimer turned a vacant storefront at their hotel into a private gym and placed a large neon sign outside of it that read Days of Thunder. They spent $400,000 of the film's budget on this renovation for this private gym. Um, Simpson also had a closet full of high-priced high dresses uh, for the women that his assistants would pick up for him on Daytona Beach. Uh, he also rented out clubs and had private parties where Tone Loke performed. Oh, wow. Tone Loke. Very much of the time. Uh, and I can also assume an awful lot of cocaine. Uh, Simpson, also at this kind of peak era, again, seeing that the producers are the stars of these movies, uh, he wanted them to write him an acting role in the film where he actually gets to play one of the race car drivers. And I think it was supposed to be a much bigger part, uh, but Simpson couldn't act is what it was. <laughs> and uh, there's a rumor that Tony Scott shot some of the bigger scenes with him early on. So when they watched dailies, they're like, yeah, he can't do that much. Um, <laughs> so he only has like one line in the movie. So also Simpson, Bruckheimer, and even screenwriter Robert Town would get into regular arguments with Tony Scott over how to set up a shot in the film, creating further delays. Allegedly, there were some days where they would go 20 hours without getting a shot off. Um, according to some oh, crew God. members, they had built up enough overtime pay from just sitting around. They ended up, by the end of filming, had earned enough money to go on a four-month vacation. Wow. For the scenes at Harry's barn, because Robert, Robert Duvall's character like, were, like owns a barn, and that's where he kind of like goes and stays, it was apparently built a total of three times. Writer Robert Town didn't like the first time it was built, and he told him to build it, rebuild it to his specifications. Then after they rebuilt it, he came back, didn't like that one either, and made them rebuild it again. Oh, my God. Uh, and also, after Tom Cruise did not win an Oscar for his performance in Born on Fourth July, apparently the budget was cut down even more because they didn't see Cruise as having enough clout as they thought he would. Um, on top of all this, when the production began, there was not a completed script. Uh, for some of the driving scenes, apparently Cruise had to have his lines taped to the windshield so he could read them. <laughs> and this caused a minor car accident. And after this, they gave him an earpiece that could feed him his lines as he was driving. Oh my God. The film was only supposed to have a budget of $35 million and ended up being at least $60 million. The film ended up finishing filming in the early part of May, 1990. That's three months after they were initially supposed to wrap. And for those doing the math at home, yes, they completed the film in May, 1990, and the film was released in June of 1990. Oh my God. <laughs> I also saw it because I, I was looking up some of the locations and I saw where they like, like toured around the South to shoot in all these actual racetracks. Yes. And it's just like, I feel like any other film would have just cheated one racetrack to... Yep. Look like all these rests, but they, I guess they wanted to. They wanted to go be all to the NASCAR fans. That's not Darlington. That's, that's not Daytona. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I gotta be honest. It's amazing this film's as good as it is. Yeah. N knowing they had a month to edit this film, because a little bit of a spoiler, 
it wasn't until they got to the editing room that Scott realized he didn't have Cole crossing the finish line of the final race. <laughs> so when you watch the movie, you just see the car going by camera and that cuts the, 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 uh, the, the stance like, yeah. And, like and the guy like the waving the flag. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's because that's what they do. Apparently. Cause again, you don't have CG at this moment when shooting the race car sequences, they actually had to shoot them during actual NASCAR races. Apparently, they were able to put their cars in during the Daytona 500, it sounds like, so they could shoot wide shots that could get the crowd involved. Wow. So it sounds like they actually put these people, <laughs> like their cars, in the Daytona 500 for one, for in, in 1990. Sweet, sweet, mellow yellow product placement. Oh, yeah. So much product placement, but that's, that's, that's what this is. That's NASCAR for you. That is. Uh, the rest of the racing scenes were shot on empty tracks uh, at 120 to 140 miles per hour, which is less than the usual NASCAR race. Yeah, I I didn't know all this going in to rewatch it, and I literally just found this all out like the past few days, and I was like, I don't know how this film's like makes sense now, like how like <laughs> because I mean I'm just thinking about it. it's a little bit different now in terms of digital editing and everything. You got to think they were editing on film at this point mm -hmm. <laughs> and they had a month to cut, to cut this movie, sound design, score, all that. Um, so yeah, it's insane. But to, to bring in, I, <laughs> I have a buddy that doesn't like this. I really like days of thunder. I like days of thunder too. I, but I'm like, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the hot take realm. I like it more than top gun okay yeah no that's yeah it's fine days of a, thunder that is a hot take i don't even like i like days of thunder i don't even like i think i think ron howard came along and did days of thunder better <laughs> in in rush i think rush is a better racing film than days of thunder but um i do like days of thunder my problem with days of thunder mm -hmm. and this might go hand in hand with them not having a finished script is i think it tries to do too much there are okay. three major like character relationship arcs being yes being cole and uh michael rooker's character rowdy yeah rowdy, rowdy yeah yeah cole and his his neurologist played by claire, Nicole kidman yeah claire claire lewicki and and cole and, and robert duvall yeah harry yeah and i you could have you could have dropped one i would have dropped honestly and I, and i know this gave us 10 years of of gossip magazine uh yeah claire yeah material but i would have dropped her because i i feel like we really don't like they keep talking about cole and rowdy and and i think that's the heart of the movie is cole and and cole and robert duvall and cole and rowdy i think those two are really the heart of the movie and and it just turns into a lot of him talking to nicole kidman about michael rooker and i'm like i want to see him talking to michael rooker yeah i noticed this time when we're watching it is that she doesn't pop up literally until the 40 minute mark mm hmm and that's not unheard of in movies of characters popping up late, but it is a little odd because she is the love interest of the movie uh, that she's and it. And then it spends like, I mean, look at comparisons say Top Gun is mm -hmm. that Kelly McGillis pops up pretty early. Like you have your opening sequence and then you have like, Oh, you guys are going to Top Gun. And then pretty soon after they're in the bar and they're meeting, they're meeting Charlie or yeah. Charlotte. Uh, this is like, he goes through a lot of racing and he meets Nicole Kidman, Claire, because of the accident that him and Rowdy have on the speedway. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I I get that. Here's here, well here's here's what I'll say about Days of Thunder. I'm not saying Days of Thunder is a better movie. I'm saying I like it more. Uh, um, <laughs> I think I put my review of it on Letterboxd. This is how I, I argue is that I think Top Gun has much higher highs, but also much lower lows. And I think Days of Thunder just kind of rides the middle the entire time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not a better film for talking about just like pure, like adrenaline rush of like aerial shot or the aerial sequences and Top Gun. But I think it doesn't like drop like a rock at the bottom of the ocean as it, as it sometimes does in Top Gun is how I feel. I feel like okay, it just kind of yeah. like goes along uh, the entire time. And I feel like, I'm not saying Top Gun doesn't know what it is. I think it does. I think Days of Thunder knows what it is. Like, I think it knows it's like a little bit of an outlandish racing movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Tarantino said it best. He was talking about, he's like, it's a really enjoyable movie. He said it's one of his favorite, it's, it's his favorite racing movie. It's a really enjoyable movie if you don't take it seriously. And it's because it's not supposed to be taken seriously. But like I said, I, I really like Days of Thunder. I think, and maybe a buddy of mine, he said, I think it's because it's your Southern version of Top Gun. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it is a Southern version of Top Gun. Yeah, and and Robert Duvall and 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 Cruz like Cruz has great chemistry with everyone in this. Yeah, but he and Duvall have great chemistry. He and Rooker have great chemistry. They do. I love I love a little John C. Riley peppered in. I love a little '90s John C. Riley in my movies. Did you see the other wall card reference in in a uh, in a uh, Days of Thunder? No, what was it's a it's a film debut of someone else, uh, Mario Martindale. She is briefly in the scene when Cole has his first race around the track. She's mm-hmm. the one doing the timing for it. Oh, I did. I didn't even clock her. And her, wow. her, 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 and John C. Ryder, and they don't they have lines together, but they're in the scene together. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, who'd have thought? Years <laughs> later, she'd be playing his mother yep. in Walk Hard. But yeah, it's her. It's her film debut in the in this nice. movie for a brief scene. Um, and then you know you get, you get Riley playing um, in Ricky Bobby Talia Nights a decade later. What do you want to know? Well, hell, Cole, you're the driver. You think she's running loose or tight? Tell us. We give a turn here, take some wedge out there, we'll win some races. That's all there is to it. I can't do that. Well, why the hell not? Because I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Well, how do you mean that? I don't know much about cars, okay? Well, hey, Cole, that don't make you a damn bit different from any driver I ever met. No, I mean, I really don't know. I don't know what you just said about the turn here and wedge there. I don't know. I don't know. How did that be? What's the difference? Hey, they, they told me to get in the car and drive, and I could drive. Point is, I'd like to help out, but I can't. I'm an idiot. I don't have the vocabulary. Well, well, then we're just gonna have to figure one out, aren't we? <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> Ebert wrote an interesting review. It's interesting reading the reviews for Ebert's Tony Scott movies in this period because, like, I feel like three of the four are all like breakdowns of the genre that Tony Scott is working within. Mm-hmm. 
and this yeah. is one he calls the Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, yeah, this is one of his like great reviews where he's just yeah. like, "This is what happens in every Tom Cruise movie," yeah. and yeah. it's just one of those that's like, "Yeah, he's not even really talking about Days of Thunder. He's just obviously kind of like fed up with um, <laughs> with being fed the same Tom Cruise movie and over and over again." But he basically says like, "It only works because it's Tom Cruise in the movie." Yeah, but it's like it's like you have the he he calls we you have the the young hotshot character and he compares it to color of money top gun uh cocktail and then you have the mentor the older person who's seen it all who sees how good this kid could be if long as he doesn't get in his own way and that's the the arena which is like the the how how this character tests their abilities mm-hmm. uh and color of money it's it's pool top gun it's it's aviation and this it's uh nascar racing or stock car racing and then you have like the the love interest that's kind of the as he breaks it down like the person that like is the spiritual mentor or something of the tom cruise character yeah he said someone who's taller and smarter than than tom cruise's character <laughs> oh he did say he does say that you're correct he does say that in, <laughs> in there and it's the arcana which is the knowledge that the character needs to needs to gain and then you have like the proto villain and then the true villain and the proto or the proto enemy is michael rooker's character and then uh the true em- enemy is uh Kyrielis in this movie so he really breaks it down pretty detailed in this in, in his review and then you're like but you gave it three out of four stars raj <laughs> and it sounds like so that's why the, i think that the uh the star system is very kind of arbitrary and like you, the, read the review and i'll determine it a lot, no, a I, lot of his tony scott reviews seem to be like i fundamentally i fundamentally don't like this <laughs> genre or like that where this indicates where like filmmaking is headed to yeah yeah but tony scott does that's it really, really well, well. <laughs> even though i don't like it that's yeah i think that's what he says in like in uh in this movie and then maybe and though specifically in last boy scout which we'll get into he's like derides he goes but tony scott makes it really good yeah which is i mean that's 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 you know what you want out of a critic is to be like i have personal problems with this film but it is well done yeah (laughs) but yeah so in this movie like some favorite scenes of mine i I just again i love kind of cruises uh chemistry with a lot of people in it i i do agree kind of the nicole kim and stuff is is kind of the weaker relationship of the three I still like them together in the movie, mm-hmm. but it it is the weaker of the three. Again, I love we're we going to start seeing. I think in this period onward is how really great Tony Scott is, and whoever is involved in this decision making uh, with casting. Yeah, like he's starting to put together some really phenomenal cast that I think gets overlooked a lot of the time. Yeah absolutely yeah especially rewatching a lot of these this week i was like oh my god i forgot like all these great character actors that i love i mean john c Riley being one I, I consider yeah obviously we talked about last month he's got leading man abilities but is one of the like especially during the 90s one of the most solid character actors out there yeah and um yeah he just continues to kind of fill his his movies for especially this era with some of the most promising kind of upcoming talent he's got big stars and then he just like surrounds them with older kind of established character actors and up-and-coming actors yeah he's, he's definitely got a great eye for casting yeah you have tom cruise robert duvall nicole kim and, and michael rooker and then you have carrie elwes who i think i wonder if it establishes his like run of like being a villain in movies <laughs> like this reminds me of his character in twister for some strange reason 
Uh, and then Randy Quaid, uh, Fred Thompson, John C. Riley, and then again I said uh, Mario Martindale. But the cast could have been different. Let me tell you some of the names that were rumored for this movie. Yeah. For Rowdy Burns, who's played on Michael Rooker, apparently Tom Cruise wanted someone else for it early on, and his name is Kurt Russell. Nah, give me Rooker. Yeah, I think Rooker's I better. I, I don't like there being like so many pretty boy NASCAR two, two, drivers. Yeah. I'm not going to believe if there's if you tell me there's three pretty boy NASCAR drivers, <laughs> I'm out. I can believe Tom Cruise and maybe Carrie Elvis, but um, I like Rooker feels like a, a Rooker's NASCAR yeah, driver. a NASCAR driver most definitely. Again, again, it's like you, you need again this like this movie being a a it doesn't explicitly say hey this is a southern movie, but it is a southern movie. In a mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, it starts off. I mean, early on, it's you see like an American flag, and you see a Confederate flag flying at the NASCAR, like the NASCAR race with like kind of the fans there. So like, it's very much like they're in the South, and like Rooker and like they're like do it like Rooker and and Nicole Kidman and Rooker's wife and Cruz like out on a boat, like on the lake at one point, like very Southern autumn like afternoon. It feels like sun sun setting beautiful again mm -hmm. it's tony scott so the stuff's beautiful with how he shoots it um it, it's it's crazy to think that robert town uh but specifically bruckheimer and simpson were fighting over tony you're not you don't know how to shoot a movie tony let me tell you how you put up a shot um it's insane uh so there's russell and then according to dale earnhardt jr dale earnhardt senior had a meeting with tom cruise about acting in the film and it was rumored he was offered the role of Rowdy, also the Michael Rooker character. Well, yeah, no, no disrespect to to Dale. Dale Singer, praise Hale, yeah. praise Dale, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, not for me. My, I mean, Rooker, Rooker kills in this movie, and that's why I'm kind he of does. selfishly coming at like trying to get rid of the Nicole Kidman plot so that we can have more <laughs> Rooker. But um, my favorite scene in the movie is when when Cole finally like gets the courage to kind of go try and get rowdy to go to the hospital and they've got that yeah. scene while he's shooting pool and mm -hmm. cole's like what'd you win that cup for and rowdy can't remember yeah and then cole and some classic tom cruise overacting cole like slams the the uh pool cue and is like i'm gonna either take you to the hospital or i'm gonna bust your head open right now <laughs> With Cruz and I mean with Elias, but it's like you're always gonna see these weird mixes of acting styles in this mm -hmm. in these films, which is interesting to see. We'll get to a movie that I think it does it very well. Yeah, I think obviously I feel like most of the world is most familiar with with Rooker and Hale at, from the Guardians of the Galaxy series playing kind of an asshole who who you, turns good and you learn to love. But like he's always like that is his yeah. Shout out one of my favorite movies, Tombstone when he uh he's he's one of the ones that like bails on uh he's he's part of the the, the bad gang and then he shows mm -hmm. up and is like ah, i don't i don't want to be part of that gang anymore and joins up with uh joins up with wyatt Earp's squad like that's his uh that's his bread and butter you're not looking too good i mean these things you chew every day what you come here for take you to the hospital If it'd been anybody but a damn woman doctor, I'd been back on the track weeks ago. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Listen, man, I've raced with my legs broke, heart bruised, eyes popping out of my head like they're on springs. And this is gonna go away just like anything else. It's 
far as I'm concerned, I'm gonna live forever. Unless I go to some damn hospital where they take your shoes off and make you shut your eyes and bang you dead. What'd you win this for? This one. Right here, what'd you win this for? Doesn't it say? Yeah, it's the Winston Cup, buddy. Well, hell, that's an easy one to forget. What's your name, or has that slipped your mind, too? Screw you, man. Okay. We can go down there and fix your head. We can fix it right here! Now, what's it gonna be? Another big thing I want to bring up here, it became the first collaboration between Tony Scott and Hans Zimmer. Scott apparently, I don't know how true this is, but apparently tried to get Zimmer on both Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Revenge. And Zimmer mm. at this point wasn't well known. I think his first kind of big movie, kind of big breakout is Rain Man in 88. Mm -hmm. And then Zimmer, again, I want to put this in early, is like, it, it kind of establishes Zimmer as like this big go-to. Like I think in 90, he does Days of Thunder and Green Card, which we've talked about on the show before by Peter Weir. Yeah. And, and and Zimmer, I think, does this movie. He's going to do True Romance. He's going to do Crimson Tide. And we'll talk more about it in Crimson Tide. But it's without these movies early on with Tony Scott, I don't know if you have Zimmer being as heavily popular in the kind of genres he's in now with like the superhero genres, the Chris Nolan movies and the Zack Snyder stuff, the DC superhero movies. I think if you don't have Tony Scott, that might not happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think also if you don't have Bruckheimer, you know, he was, he was doing, we, we've, you and I have talked about this personally. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast, but Hans Zimmer kind of started doing a lot of like kind of world music type stuff, new age yeah. world yeah. music type stuff. And, and I feel like it's these specific movies with Scott and with Bruckheimer that really got him into like the action and the like electric guitar action kind of stuff. But even as you're watching yeah, just these four movies and his work with Zimmer, you can hear Zimmer kind of within these movies, you can hear Zimmer start to evolve into that like Pirates, Dark Knight yes chris nolan sound that he that he's so well known for now when watching crimson tide i was like oh this is where it's at this yep. is the beginning of it this is where mm -hmm. the, you, you're hearing like early occurrences of gladiator early occurrences of pirates caribbean and dark knight it's very apparent in in crimson tide um yep. but real quick before we move on to last boy scout reception for days of thunder uh so if you can't tell the film did not match the success of top gun uh, the box office gross for Top Gun was over $350 million worldwide, while Days of Thunder was just $157 million. Bruckheimer and Simpson blamed Paramount Pictures, the film studio, on its mishandling of the marketing for the film, while Paramount blamed Bruckheimer and Simpson for the massive budget like uh, <laughs> extensions and the countless yeah. delays. Not long after, Paramount parted ways with the producing duo that had been so hot for them during the 1980s. I think Bruckheimer and Simpson were just like, well, screw you guys. Like, we want to work with you again. And Paramount's like, cool, we'll let you out of your contract. So that happens. And and some people kind of say it's like a, a beginning of the, a, a change in the industry where, like, it becomes not as producer-driven for a little bit. becomes more director-driven because of the fall of, of Days of Thunder and Bruckheimer. I don't know how true that is, um, but as a thought. So Last Boy Scout is the next film Tony Scott makes released in 1991. Thomas was last boy scout about um, the last boy scout, which we covered fairly recently um, for listeners of the podcast uh, is about kind of a disgraced secret service officer 
who is uh, now working as is he private eye in this one? He's a pri- he's a detective, yeah, private investigator. Who gets hired to who is kind of actually forced into this case about yeah. a football player whose uh, girlfriend has been killed, and it turns into this whole plot to um to assassinate another president. They're gonna shoot like it's a it's Baynard, so I think it's like a guy who's gonna who is a politician who's about to run. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, he's running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I, I knew there was a sniper there. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's starring Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans, and, and a script written by Shane Black. It's a buddy yeah. cop, not a buddy. Co- it's a buddy movie, uh, very much in the Shane but, Black yeah, realm. Buddy, buddy detective football player. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this the the premise of that's. I mean, it's this is the, this is the uh, era of like premises sell like sell in a way. Yeah. And it's the it's Shane Black, it's Lethal Weapon, but Bruce Willis and a football player. It's a detective and a football player. Yeah, this I don't want to spend too much time on it. It's not Scott's. It's I think it's Scott's weakest of this period. If these four yeah. movies we're talking about. This is the weakest one. And I think it's one of Black's weakest. Weakest as well. Yeah, I think both Black and Scott said the script is better than the movie. Um, and that's why I want to give credit to Scott early on. Is that Tony? definitely will tell you if he if he realizes that he screwed up in some way if like oh yeah we didn't go the way i thought it was gonna go or yeah i really messed up in this like, I, I, he seems fairly honest uh about what he thinks of the film once it's done i think it's uh i think it's really interesting to watch this one especially knowing that he did it back to back with true romance in that shane black and tarantino are both very postmodern writers yeah they're they're both people who kind of take on this meta to both deconstruct action Mm -hmm. movies while also making action movies Mm -hmm. and and it does feel like scott and we talked about this the last time we talked about it we said it kind of feels like scott doesn't get what shane black's deal is yeah and it feels like he's just making an action movie and not really realizing that black shane black is kind of about making action movies but like kind of meta action movies yeah and and it's interesting that you say that scott kind of recognizes that he messed up on this one because i he doesn't mess up on true romance which he we'll doesn't. get to and yeah. so it's almost like he used this as a learning experience to be like oh i need to just lean into what these these guys are, are writing yeah and kind of let that speak for itself yeah but i also wonder because as I said on the last podcast, that Tony Scott hated working with Joel Silver, the film's producer. Mm, yeah. And there are reported clashes of Silver, Scott, Black, and Bruce Willis about how the movie should be. So I wonder what that plays into it. Because when you get the true romance, that's not really present as much. Right. Um, also, too, when looking at, say, this one feels like an outlier when looking at the crew and everything. It's the one movie that I feel like Tony Scott doesn't use one of his go-to editors as the main editor. It almost mm. feels like he's a director for it's like, again, it's this producer mentality. We're talking about Bruckheimer and Simpson and Joel Silver has his way of making movies. And it almost feels like Tony Scott is being brought in because like, Hey, we want what you do with those action films in the eighties for this movie. And it's like all the, it's like the, the food, the, the ingredients aren't mixing. Well, is mm-hmm. kind of the thing. Um, yeah. And because I read, I'll read this: is that one of the one of the few films where Scott has frequent editors? Uh, many people that that uh, were hired to do to edit this movie had no clue how to work with his multiple camera usage because he would use a lot of cameras 
to shoot certain scenes. The thing Crimson Tide, he used like would uh, use up to four cameras at that point, which is kind of unheard of for the era. Um, one of the editors of the film, Mark Goldplatt, who also worked who worked in the film, recalls it as one of the most painful and frustrating experiences of his entire career and refuses to discuss it in interviews. Uh, although he did mention in a podcast interview that several other editors, editors were hired and then fired before him and that Warner Brothers began testing the movie before it was completely finished. Uh, so it sounds like oh, they didn't man. know what to do with the movie. Uh, and I think some, they actually brought in, uh, I think, Billy Weaver or Weber and Chris Levinson, who are Tony Scott's go-to editors most of the time, and they mm-hmm. did like additional editing on the movie. But it seems like it's just this, they didn't know what to do with this film. I feel like it got lost in the making of it. Um, and I think because the movie, because it, it was bought for, the script was bought for $1.75 million, which is the highest purchase of any spec script at this point. So I feel like there's a lot of pressure to make this movie good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's just a lot of people who didn't know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> and I said, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an okay film. It's a very funny. It's a very like cynical film. I think Ebert mm-hmm. talks about this is how like Scott is able to kind of like elevate the movie a little bit above the cynicism within the movie. But yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to talk too much about it cause we've talked about it before, but I think, I mean, I think Scott's visuals are still great in the movie. I do think Willis and Wayne's have good chemistry. Mm-hmm. even though they apparently hate each other while working on the on the movie yeah i mean it doesn't it it and that's part i think that's part of the reason this one doesn't stick out as much it doesn't hit as much as some of the chemistry in his other movies and in, in shane black's other movies it's obviously you're never going to top uh gibson and glover but um yeah it's they're, yeah they're still good together they're just not anywhere near some of those other pairings that shane black has been able to put together over the years yeah hey, i don't know about you but i could use a drink Shit, that's you? You are fucking Ward Cleaver. Yeah, as a regular Boy Scout. You and the president. Damn, hanging with the man. They look like one of those cardboard cutout things you see down in Venice Beach. I went to have my picture taken with Don Johnson like that. I still got the picture. Nah, I threw it away. <sighs> so you gonna get a divorce, man? You don't like women much, do you, Joe? At least I like the guy she was fucking. He was my best friend. Nah, he was a scumbag private detective, man. Yeah. All private detectives are scumbags. Yeah, but that scumbag tried to get you killed. Well, friends can't be perfect. I wish the sky wasn't blue. I wish water wasn't wet. And I wish I didn't still love my wife. It wasn't a big hit. It made $114 million on a $43 million budget. Uh, critical reception was very mixed. Ebert did give it three out of four stars. A superb mm-hmm. example of what it is. Glossy, skillful, cynical, smart, utterly corrupt, and vilely misogynistic action thriller. That's the one where he's like, I don't like this, but Scott directs it well. Yeah. So I don't hate it, but I don't love it. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's kind of talking about it's like Joel Silver's Joel Silver and Shane Black's kind of like uh, specifically Silver's use of like uh, violence against women in films, but it has a little bit of a cult following. I feel like it's a very kind of mean spirited film. I think it's honestly one of Scott's most mean spirited films, if I'm honest. Um, 
so after that, as you said, back to back, 91's Last Boy Scout, 93 is True Romance, which is written by Quentin Tarantino, who's hot off of Reservoir Dogs uh, from 92. But it's the first script that he sold that he's not directing. And uh, True Romance is about kind of a couple on the run movie. Uh, Christian Slater plays Clarence Worley, who is this kind of guy who works at a comic book store, kind of a kind of a nerdy character. Um, and he meets this woman by the name of Alabama Whitman, who is a call girl, a hooker, uh, a prostitute in the movie. And they fall in love and he decides to marry her and get her out of, of the world they're in. They go, go and run off together, but he goes to get her stuff and tell her pimp at the time that she is leaving. And he ends up killing the pimp played by Gary Oldman and stealing the cocaine, the, the actually stealing the mass amounts of cocaine that are there. And now are being chased down by uh, drug, drug lords and uh, cops eventually uh, for this murder and for the stealing of these drugs. This is, is easily one of Scott's best films. Mm-hmm. I won't say if it is his best film. We'll wait till the last episode on that one. <laughs> but it's a again phenomenal cast. Yeah, and and I think as you said, the exact opposite of how he handles Shane Black's script, where it feels like there's clashes. Him and Tarantino just blend together so well in mm-hmm. this movie. It's kind of insane. Um, because Scott's Scott wasn't a writer of his movies and he really is a director who interprets the movie of how he wants to. And Tarantino always talks about how, like he goes, Scott, he, he goes like, I didn't have, he goes, when I wrote in the script about Gary Oldman, Drexel's character, uh, Drexel's like house, it's just his house. And Scott makes it like a nightclub slash like, uh, house aquarium like a whole wall of fish yeah aquarium. he goes i didn't write in the script stacks of aquariums to the ceiling that's all tony scott of like he goes tarantino's like he goes it doesn't make sense but it's cinema mm-hmm. <laughs> like it works visually or like there's the hanging lamp that gary oldman's like using to like throw yeah. back and forth he goes that's not in my script he goes and it makes no sense why the lamp is that low to the grounds but like Scott sees it as this, like we can use this. You can use something weird in here to make mm-hmm. Gary Ullman menacing. And it's this yeah. lamp that's used as a weapon. Yeah. I think this is one of the best possible outcomes of like a really, really strong yep. voiced writer and a very strong voice director coming together, especially since this is easily Tarantino's most like wish fulfillment script like he is clarence like from what we know yes, of, of young yes. Quar- quentin tarantino that is him that is and him. i mean the first 20 minutes of this movie are like i'm i'm not i'm just gonna be me i'm just gonna talk about elvis i'm gonna love karate movies and i'm gonna love comic books and yeah, some Kung Fu, amazing yeah. girl is gonna fall in love with me for it yeah i'm gonna go <laughs> to triple feature my, of sonny chiva <laughs> and then my skills at talking fast are gonna get me through ev- anything <laughs> Yeah, a Tarantino sets his most autobiographical film. Yeah, for and sure. It really is. It's the like. Well, it's funny because like uh, it's supposed to take place in Detroit, um, but the movie theater is the Vista, mm-hmm. which yeah. is I think near where Tarantino lived around that point in time or at some point yeah. in his career. It's like the Los Feliz area. Yeah, it's like yeah, East Side. So it's like I'm like, but it's De- it's Detroit in the movie. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, it's it very much is Tarantino. It like it's it's the I'm just talking to a girl about Elvis and no one understands me. But then this girl, Alabama, ends up like getting me, and she's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen before in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, he's like, yeah, he works at a comic book store and like can just like hang out and like just read comics all the time. And I do wonder. It's funny because like at that point, the, to show you how things have changed, is that comic books were niche at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that's like, I mean, it's funny because he he kind of he, he takes a little. True Romance is also a little bit of Tarantino takes from another movie called Breathless, not the Godard movie, the remake <laughs> of the Godard movie with Richard Gere, which I'm in. I'm in the Tarantino camp, highly underrated. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, that 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 movie brings up Silver Surfer a lot, weirdly, in, mm-hmm. in the eighties Breathless, and he brings it up in this movie too, uh, and he brings up and it's we'll talk about it later, but it's brought up in Crimson Tide as well. Um, but yeah, it's like it's I agree, it's very much like the like kind of the hairstyle, and also you got to think Tarantino at this point when he first started out in Hollywood, he's trying to be an actor. So he's going mm-hmm. audition. So like you have the Michael Rapport character who's like going to audition for T.J. Hooker, uh, and so you're seeing like kind of the inner workings of the low-level Hollywood people. And I feel like that's definitely what Tarantino was going through in the early 90s, late 80s, before mm-hmm. he breaks out. But they also mesh, their styles mesh insanely well, like we were talking about with Tony Scott's got this great eye for casting, and Tarantino's got this great voice for bringing in, you know, these incredible characters for one scene. And then, yeah. you know, we, we get them from one scene and then we drop them. And so that those two things work together so well, where we get Scott bringing in these people who a lot of them end up kind of becoming part of Tarantino's repertoire after that. You know, we give we give Christopher Walken this one great scene and then we get the, you know, the pocket watch, the the yeah. fiction pocket watch scene. Yep. Uh, we give Brad Pitt like two or three great scenes. And then, you know, years down the line, we get once upon a time you know, Aldo Rain and, and we get uh, once upon a time yeah. in Hollywood. Like, yeah. And, and and Sam Jackson, Sam Jackson yeah. plays briefly uh, a character who 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 meets with Drexel Gary Oldman. He's in one scene, then a year later he's in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Chris Penn, who just had done Reservoir Dogs in this movie, mm-hmm. I, one, a guy I like in this movie. I know he's I don't know he's questionable now, but Tom Sizemore. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's two guys. There's two guys in this. Uh, Tom Sizemore. I was like, wow, Tom Sizemore really went on like a hot run in the '90s. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, Oh, yeah, the the other one that I I always forget had like such a hot run with Tarantino and with uh, Scorsese is Kevin Corrigan. Oh yeah, he's in this he's in this movie too. He's Kevin in this movie Corrigan's too, yeah. career is so so interesting. Yeah, yeah, very odd. I just think I'm in the brother in Grounded for Life. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like who cast him in Grounded for Life? Being like, oh, you know the guy he was in Goodfellas and he he shot a bunch of people in uh yeah and that in, true, uh, romance. true romance. Yeah, we should definitely get him for this multicam sitcom. <laughs> um, but yeah, also like, but Bronson Pinchu's in it, and Bronson Pinchu wasn't in Beverly Hills Cop two. But wasn't Beverly Hills Cop one? He was, yeah. This is this uh, is one of his best. He, I love Bronson Pinchot, yeah. but this is one of his best. And uh, and, I, and it's, Saul it's Goodman, sli- yeah. So yeah, so, Saul Rubinek is in it. Saul, uh, Saul Rubinek, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, but like, and I, I think it's Christian Slater's best movie. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge Christian Slater fan, but he's, he's plays Tarantino very well in this. Yeah, he does. Yes, I, I agree. But yeah, like, I mean, James Gandolfini pops up in this movie again. Like, the cast is just insane. I mean, mm-hmm. having mentioned Val Kilmer, who's in this yep. movie as the, and you never mentor, even see his face. Never even see his face. Uh, his, his name is the mentor in the credits because apparently they didn't want to call him Elvis. They didn't want to be sued. Uh, So they've called him the mentor could be, but Kilmer's playing Elvis is what he is. Uh, I like you. I like you. I like you, Clarence. Always have (laughs) always will. Uh, Enough about the king. How about you? How about me? What? Tell me, tell me about yourself. What do you want to know? Well, for starters, uh, what do you do? Where are you from? What's your favorite color? Who's your favorite movie star? What kind of uh, music do you like? What do you turn on? Do you turn off? Just the, uh, the big question is, do you have a do you have a fella? <laughs> okay, ask me again one by one. What do you do? I don't remember. Where are you from? I don't know. What's your favorite color? I don't know. Black? <laughs> well, who's your favorite movie star? Burt Reynolds. Uh, you want you want to buy my pie? This one. A little one. All right. <laughs> you all right? That's good. Mm-hmm. You like it? Mm-hmm. What kind of music you like? Phil Spector. Girl group stuff like he's a rebel. What are your, uh, what are your turn-offs? Mm, Mickey Rourke. Man, can appreciate the finer things in life, like sugar. Mm. <laughs> Elvis's voice. Kung fu. Pie. I just think this movie it hits on so many accounts. It's so many kind of well-crafted scenes in terms of writing from Tarantino and then in terms of Scott's direction. Um, and I think it just works beautifully. And I want to bring up, this is when I'm going to spoil the ending a little bit because I want to talk about this. Um, but it's a couple on the run movie. One or two things is going to happen. Mm-hmm. They're going to get away or they're not going to get away. Plain and simple. And in this movie that was a debate in the in in the early stages of filming it between Scott and Tarantino. Tarantino's original script had the cut or had a um had Clarence dying at the end of the film. After this massive sh- like Mexican standoff, this gun shootout that's very reminiscent of Reservoir Dogs. Um mm. Clarence dies and then uh Alabama Patricia Arquette's character goes off and like lives her like she's I think she com- thinks about committing suicide but then does it but then just like leaves like I'm gonna have a life of my own I think I think his original intention was like she his idea was that she goes off into a life of crime because mm. that's why her character is mentioned in Reservoir Dogs to Harvey Keitel and they're like, oh, I saw Alabama. He goes, when was the last time you saw Alabama? He goes, Alabama? Oh, it's been a while. Because that's her character. So that was the idea of why she's mentioned in Reservoir Dogs. Because uh, he thought like she would go off and live a life crime. But Tony Scott's like, I want these kids to survive and be happy. Mm-hmm. Like, they're so likable. I don't want them to end on a bad ending. And he, ch- and he shoots both endings. He's like, I'll shoot both endings for you. And we'll decide in post-production. Tarantino's like, that's the best I can ask any person to do. And Tarantino, we listened to a commentary he did about the ending. He watched the alternate ending. He's like, yeah, he goes, I have to say, Tony was right for the movie he was mm-hmm. making. Because he does, he's right. He makes a fairy tale movie. 
mm-hmm. in a way with true romance and like it didn't earn this tragic ending that would have happened because i'm watching it and i'm just like yeah this has been so many just like downbeats the very end of the movie that was so kind of like energized and like love and warmth and warm in a weird way yeah like and all of a sudden it's just like drops well and we've also we've seen so many of these lovers on the run movies that that end like that so it's yes. it's almost there's you know in a lot of times people think of like the unhappy ending as as the big twist like i'm gonna stick it to hollywood i'm i'm gonna be different i'm gonna kill them off at the end but like this is one genre where it's it's more rare for them to walk away from it yeah like both of them usually yeah usually there's always that usually it's the male that dies and the woman has to deal with her like deal without the man this happens in several movies the 70s and 80s but this just works well it's like it's very happy and i think i think his writing's better and and the and the ending they use like listening to the 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 um voiceover that she has the because it's very like Mm -hmm. badlands-esque with the opening and closing sissy space like sissy space-esque dialogue or narration beginning and ending and I think his writing is so amazing in the in the real ending, the final, the, the the accepted ending of True Romance. I think it's so amazing, and it just doesn't pop as well in the alternate ending. I think it just it just it feels more poetic in uh in the ending of True Romance. But yeah, again, I feel like every actor in this movie gets a great moment, and that's that's a testament to tarantino's writing but a testament to tony scott's direction that everyone has their scene i said having tom sizemore and chris penn come in there and sizemore is just like i mean a wrecking ball is what Mm -hmm. comes off as in this scene but and then christian slater i think i says is good in this movie i think him arquette are great together i think i mean uh the scene i'm not gonna play we can't play this as a clip really because it's so very uh using language i don't want to put on the show but between christopher walken and dennis hopper mm-hmm. um with the sicilian scene is just like two great actors going at each other yep in the movie so yeah it's just all in all i think top to bottom one of one of scott's best movies and also one of tarantino's best films so how this movie got made a little bit I want to say this are kind of an interesting thing the original script for true romance can you guess how many pages it was oh interesting i don't know if it's like was it super long or was it super short long very uh, long 220 no more than that? double that what <laughs> uh the original script for true romance was 500 pages that's a book <laughs> It was written, apparently it was written with Tarantino and Roger Avery, who also who co-wrote Pulp Fiction with him. Uh, and they worked at Video Archives together when they worked at the video store. Uh, the other half of the script would become Natural Born Killers, basically. It was a, it oh, was a okay. mashup of True Romance and Natural Born Killers. And he essentially broke them apart and made two movies. I want to bring this up, too, because we compared Tarantino and Black. I want to compare Tony Scott and Oliver Stone real quick. Because Oliver Stone does Natural Born Killers which is a Tarantino script and Oliver Stone doesn't interpret the movie. He rewrites the movie and it changes. Mm-hmm. I think the purpose of Tarantino's film, Scott doesn't do that. Scott as a director interprets it the way he wants to and makes it make, makes it true to the script. So Tarantino says like, 
besides the ending, and I think in the original version, Tarantino's movie was like non-linear. Besides those two things, Scott stuck to the move, like to the script of the film. When Stone made it more about like a message movie about media and how we kind of use celebrities, and and in terms, it becomes Natural Born Killers becomes kind of misunderstood in its message because Stone doesn't get the outlandish nature of Tarantino's the cartoonish nature of of uh, Tarantino's scripts sometimes if that makes sense mm-hmm. uh yeah. and Stone I think tries to make it more serious and that's why it becomes misunderstood in a negative way yeah when I think Scott knows the movie he's making and he makes that movie it's it is the over the top cartoonish violence and spot it is the kind of eccentric like loner or outsider characters of Alabama and Clarence and it's not he's not making I don't think he's directly trying to make a statement while Stone is trying to make this big statement on society when Scott's like I just want to ha- like I want to have fun and that's mm-hmm. Tarantino a lot of the times so I just want to have fun because I want to see this in a movie because I haven't seen it in a movie before it's kind of the yeah. idea um and he I think it's a much I think that's why I think true romance I've seen natural born killers I don't remember hating it I remember like being thinking it was fine but I've never had the urge to revisit it like I have True Romance. Yeah. Real quick, Alternate Universe cast. Scott apparently spent a year searching for the actress for Alabama. Uh, a few names he looked at. Bridget Fonda, Diane Lane, Kira Sedgwick, and Julia Roberts. Hmm. I think Patricia Arquette is yeah. still the... Yeah, she's she's fantastic in this. Yeah. Have a hard time. Have a hard time picking anyone else. I agree. So the movie was loved by critics. I think Tony's first real critical success, but was a box office failure. It grossed only twelve point three million dollars on a twelve point five million dollar budget. So, but has become now a big cult following around it, and is considered by many as Scott's best film. This is. This is Drexel's coke? No, no, Drexel's dead. Shit, it's Clarence's coke. Clarence, he can do whatever he wants with it. What Clarence wants to do is to sell it. Then me and Bama here, we're gonna jump on a jet plane and spend the rest of our lives spending. So you got my letter? You you, you lined up buyers for me? Listen, Clarence, I'm not Joe Cocaine, okay? But you're an actor, I mean, I hear these Hollywood guys, they get it, they get it delivered to the set all the time. Yeah, well, they do, all right? They do. And maybe one day when I start being a successful actor, I'll be like one of those guys. But but until that day, I ain't got nothing, all right? I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out. All I got is fucking Floyd. Now, if you want me to help you sell a little bit at a time, that's no, all no, I no, can no, do. No, 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 that little bit at a time shit. It's got to be the whole enchilada in one shot. That's the way it's got to be. Clarence, do you have any idea how difficult that's going to be? What the fuck are you talking about? I'm, I'm offering half a million dollars worth of white for 200 grand. You're telling me that's going to be difficult? Very difficult. That's very difficult, do you understand? Listen to me, it's difficult because you're selling to a particular group. You understand what I'm talking about? Fat cats, big shots, guys who could afford $200,000 and guys who could use a, a whole fucking suitcase full of cocaine. Basically, Clarence, guys I don't know and guys you don't know and more importantly, they don't know you. So Scott does True Romance in 93 and then in 95, he does Crimson Tide. Thomas, what is Crimson Tide about? Uh, Crimson Tide is about a the the a submarine, a nuclear submarine, the USS Alabama, hence the the title. Roll Tide. <laughs> um, 
that is under the command of kind of a, a weathered veteran commander um uh-huh. led by gene hackman um but he's been paired up with this kind of with this executive officer who's kind of the second in command who's a younger officer who's more of kind of an ap- academic yeah they say he went to harvard i think he went he went to harvard yeah and like i think at one point hackman says like yeah the closest he's gotten to in battle uh train or in battle experiences like through simulations or something yeah but he, yeah. he's kind of brought on as the second commanding officer especially because he has an understanding of kind of like world politics and obviously a nuclear sub is uh integral in world politics uh but that's played by denzel washington um and so they are sent to keep an eye on russia as there's this like uprising a rebellion within russia and the the leader of the rebel troops is saying that if he seizes control of the capital he is going to launch nukes on america yeah and so they are sent to prepare to strike if that happens and they are sent a message saying that the rebels are seizing control and to launch the nukes but they are also attacked at the same time and they are unable to receive kind of their a second message that may or may not confirm or call off the launch and so it becomes this standoff between these two men whereas gene hackman is is this old traditional type who is following orders and denzel is someone who is thinking through the ramifications of what if we were what if that message was was a cancellation and we launch world war three single-handedly um wow this was my first time watching this one really okay um, i didn't know that yeah yeah what a like white knuckle thriller man i know right god it's this is one that it's funny because i know a lot of people who haven't seen this movie and i think it's easily one of scott's best films yeah easily it is is wild like edge of my seat yeah Uh, like it's it's so well contained Mm-hmm. um that's what i want to talk about it's like what i think makes the dilemma so well makes it so well in terms of the conflict and the suspense is that we never go above the surface Mm-mm. at all it's like they are in this submarine and they're like because that's the whole bit is that hackman's like we have to do this like we're 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 like letting possibly millions of americans die and washington's like well what if we're about to start well that's that's the conflict is that are we leaving America unprotected or are we uh, about to start a massive nuclear Holocaust mm-hmm. is what that, that's the whole dilemma. And it sounds like that premise is so just outlandish in a way, but it's handled so well. Yeah. Like so well. And I think if you don't have, for when you don't have Scott, that's one thing, but you have two of the greatest actors of their <laughs> generation yeah of their generations in a movie together and it's just a massive chess game yeah like it's insane and then surround them with like some incredible yeah supporting actors yeah it's like george dezunda who plays uh uh cobb i believe and then you have Viggo mortensen and then you have james gandolfini um i'm a huge i'm a huge matt craven fan if i'm filling out my like character actor <laughs> fantasy team matt craven uh-huh. matt craven's gonna be in the starting your- lineup oh wow i like matt craven a lot and he's he's great in this he is no a lot and, and then you have like ryan you have steve zahn briefly i don't know if you <laughs> caught that um, i was like i was watching this movie they, they, they're talking about roll tide and steve zahn's on the sub i was like oh no this is brandon's favorite movie 
I mean, they, they, literally, yeah, they literally have a, a, I mean, I can tell you right now, I don't do this, but I know people every football season, they post the Crimson Tide speech from this movie. I'm not saying Tony Scott's my favorite director, but he does have two Alabama references, back-to-back yeah. movies. Yep. Uh, with True Romance and then with Crimson Tide. Mr. Cobb? Yes, sir. You're aware of the name of this ship, aren't you, Mr. Cobb? Very aware, sir. It bears a proud name, doesn't it, Mr. Cobb? Very proud, sir. It represents fine people. Very fine people, sir. You live in a fine, outstanding state. Outstanding, sir. In the greatest country in the entire world. In the entire world, sir. And what is that name, Mr. Cobb? Alabama, sir. And what do we say? Go, Bama! Go, yeah i think this movie's so tense he handles the conflict so well and i think this is it's still it's directed by or it's produced by brookheimer and simpson but it definitely doesn't have that same days of thunder like we're the kings of the world here it's a little bit mm. more restrained and this feels like the prime like tony scott like 90s thriller movie that everyone's trying to replicate for decades mm -hmm. this is that movie like you think it, i feel like in a good or bad way however you want to take it you don't have crimson tide you don't have these gerard butler type movies of the past 10 years <laughs> yeah it's very much like with a great director and a great cast behind it you can tell a very interesting movie and a very thrilling movie i think Ebert's review, his ending line of his review about Crimson Tide, I think sums it up perfectly when he says, it's also, it's Ebert's highest rated review of a Tony Scott movie. Um, he says, even the ending is, or he goes, this is the rare kind of war movie that, is not only, that not only thrills people while they're watching it, but invites them to leave the theater actually discussing the issues. Mm -hmm. and it's a great it, it is it's like you like you really get hackman's perspective and you really get washington's perspective mm -hmm. is that do we are we are we harming america by not protecting them because there's a nuclear war and we're not relaunching the nukes or are we about to start a massive war there's a great line when uh gene hackman says like if you're wrong about this god help you and denzel says if i'm wrong about this then we're at war and god help us all there's a lot of great lines in here there's the uh uh we don't practice democracy we protect it is what mm -hmm. is what the, when they say that when we're down here in the sub we don't pr we don't practice democracy we protect it um i think the 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 same the discussion that washington and hackman have about war and about like humans in war uh i, I kind of at the table when they're like having dinner or whatever i think is masterful that was apparently mm -hmm. a robert town scene robert town was brought in to write that scene specifically <laughs> um that's great uh because this movie is like a hodgepodge of writers it's mm -hmm. like the credited writers in the movie are um michael schiffer and then a story by credit with michael schiffer and richard p henrick but there's punch-ups by tarantino who did it as a favor because of tony because he loves tony scott and true romance uh and or because of true romance and um so all of the pop culture lines that come up of them talking about silver surfer i think early on when they're about to go to the sub they're having like they're trying to name the actors in other submarine movies mm -hmm. of like the enemy below or silent or silent or a, a run silent run deep was that was one of the ones they reference it's it's very odd it's odd to hear but it it was 
they i feel like people in other jobs they're not movie people would discuss movies i think what, what kind of nails down mm-hmm. fairly yeah. fairly well yeah. But and then they also so Robert Town uh, Tarantino Steve Zalian also mm. was brought in to write some scenes. <laughs> so like this is one of you know normally you hear that many kind of ghostwriters being brought in on something you're like oh god this movie's in trouble but it actually worked it, on this it, one. It, it worked on this one. So some funny stuff about the movie: the U.S. Navy found the subject of the film objectional and inaccurate and refused to provide any assistance in the movie's making. So since the USA would not cooperate with the filming, the French Navy allowed the use of one of their uh, ballistic missile submarines along with the aircraft carrier for several scenes. But Tony Scott still had to get footage of a su- of an American submarine going under because there's a scene when Hackman and Washington are having a conversation on top of it and then you see the ship going under. Apparently, I'll read you this, Obtained the footage of the real USS Alabama departing Pearl Harbor through possibly illegal means. Uh, <laughs> a paid civilian informant tipped off Scott to the day and time of Alabama's uh, departure, an obvious violation of Navy ship movement regulations. And so Scott then had camera boats and a helicopter stand by waiting like to watch the surface, the submarine oh go God. by. They could have gotten uh, like shot down. For yeah. That. Uh, Alabama's captain requested the assistance to remove the film crew, but then simply decided to submerge the, the submarine earlier than planned, which is what Tony Scott was hoping <laughs> so that he could actually get footage of the submarine submerging to put in the film. I mean, he's, he's truly incredible here. And it's, and it's something like we've talked about some of the most amazing sequences he's done before have been like, we, we obviously talked about how incredible the, the mm-hmm. jet plane action sequences are and this is an entirely this is like a challenge to him is there's no shootouts there's not there's not a single gun fired there's one explosion and and it's just a lot of people arguing and running up and down tight hallways and um he executes it so like i said it it, it's 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 a white knuckler You're, you're on the edge of your seat and there's i mean throughout there's obviously this there's this continuing like ticking clock to impending possible nuclear holocaust but then there's a point when the the sub is sinking and it that that part is like crazy stressful and the way that he shoots it is amazing and then after something i noticed and and, and i mean I, i'm not calling myself special for noticing some dutch angles because i feel like anyone <laughs> can you know in a post uh thor world anyone can point out some dutch angles but he does he shoots it like so contained and and kind of like claustrophobic for a lot of the movie and then like once the sub has been like damaged like everything is is off kilter uh from then on that he that he shoots and it makes you feel just like off it makes you feel like you've been kind of knocked sideways as well and so and going off that because i was looking at some of the behind the scenes stuff on 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 crimson tide there's no behind the scenes stuff on days of thunder blu-ray i just want to prep i want to say that because uh, it's probably crazy, but it seems like Crimson Tide, they had fun. It mm. like Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman, just like joking around a lot of the time. <laughs> like that's good. That's good. I'm glad but to hear but that. The, but it, and and, and the, why I bring it up is in the behind the scenes stuff. They shot like a gimbal where like they had them up to where they could like move the set downwards and upwards mm-hmm. to get that Dutch angle so they could shoot it. And I'm talking about just how, like, how hard it was to get used to like walking like they're walking up. Uh, mm because because of how it was was being moved 
but yeah, there's 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 a scene where like Washington and and this is again this is very important because it's the first collaboration between Denzel and Tony Scott, which would be his most used actor throughout his career. But there's a scene there's a scene behind the scenes where uh he's Denzel Washington's driving a car, uh, a car and uh, George Dezunda is doing the like in front of the camera talking to the camera like taking them around the set and they see Denzel and Denzel's just like oh yeah this is Tony's Ferrari. He lets me drive it once a week. Um, uh, he he, I, I have to go like get it washed, and he's like, he goes, "Who is Tony Scott, by the way?" He is, and then they go, "Oh, he did, a, he did Top Gun. He directed Top Gun." He goes, "I thought Tom Cruise directed Top Gun. Did he not? Did he not direct Top Gun?" <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "Oh wow, that's great. What what else did he do? What else? Oh, he did that Days of Thunder movie. I thought Tom Cruise directed that one too. It's just like, <laughs> it's just it's it's amazing. And then Gene Hackman's like kind of like doing doing stuff in front of the camera. Like, why are you guys here? What are you doing? Get away from me! As like a joke. It, it is played as a mm-hmm. joke because it's like clearly set up. But then you're like seeing them rehearse because Washington say he took the role because he wanted to be get the opportunity to be in there and joust with the master, and that being Gene Hackman. And yep. there's scenes like on the on the I don't know what's what the on the bridge or whatever whatever the the technical term is uh, when they're like fighting over it. It really builds their their relationships like they have so many great knockdown drag outs in this movie mm-hmm. um or just really just one two punch scenes of just like or, or two-hander scenes where it is that war scene where they're just talking about the idea of war and how denzel is very uh careful and very specific in how he speaks and hackman notices that because he's not really saying how he feels about one thing or another i mean is it Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it is. <laughs> the Naval War College, it was metallurgy and nuclear reactors, not 19th century philosophy. <laughs> War is a continuation of politics by other means. Von Clausewitz. I think, uh, sir, that what he was actually trying to say was a little more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the purpose of war is is to serve a political end, but the true nature of war is to serve itself. <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> In other words, the sailor most likely to win the war is the one most willing to part company with the politicians and ignore everything except the destruction of the enemy. That You'd agree with that? I'd agree that... Uh, that's what Clausewitz was trying to say. But you wouldn't agree with it? No, sir. <laughs> no, I, I just think that in the nuclear world, true enemy can't be destroyed. Attention on deck. Von Clausewitz will now tell us exactly who the real enemy is. <laughs> Von? <laughs> my humble opinion in the nuclear world the true enemy is war itself it's just it's incredibly acted and incredibly yeah. shot and that it's just it, it really is amazing and it is his first movie it is tony scott's first movie where it is critically loved and a financial success nice i'm happy to hear it's that the first time and it took one two three four five six seven eight movies before it was both yeah i mean like like we were talking about he knows he knows how to cast a movie and and sometimes you know sometimes that doesn't always mean the most 
prestigious actors you can get. Like Top Gun didn't necessarily need Gene Hackman and uh, Denzel, but this was a movie that had, that really had meat for them to chew on, and so it all kind of came together and, and, and worked out perfectly. I don't know how you would do it, but I did think in some of these scenes, I was like, you know what? This would be a very interesting play. Yeah. Like, because it's so contained and the, it's so dialogue driven in a lot of stuff. I was just like, and there's so much conflict within the mm-hmm. characters and there's so many of these moral dilemmas. I mean, even the scene, again, when Denzel, when when, when the sub sinking and Denzel and now in, in the captain's position has to decide to close off the the gate or close off the door that would seal people in and die but it prevents the rest of the ship from going under and all of them dying but he essentially sent it's the it's the master and commander moment in a way yeah, that's it's, what i was thinking too yeah it's it's the master commander mass mo- loose yeah kind of the mass loose where it's like do i choose to save one life or two or three lives when if i do that everyone dies in the process or could everyone die in the process it's a very it's a big moral dilemma and mm it's it's a it's a it's a a great moment to bring in to test this man's ability as a leader and it can he make these difficult decisions which is what hackman could do is kind of what was proving and now it's like here you go here you go hunter make the decision what are we gonna do you know it's funny with this uh this group of films that we watched is when i was a kid my dad like had very specific movies that i knew that he liked Mm-hmm. With Robert Duvall, I knew he liked like very specific Gene Hackman movies, and I knew he liked very specific Dennis Hopper movies. And so, like, I used to get those three men confused a lot when I was a kid because I was just like, "Those are guys that my dad likes." And yeah. uh, then we got got all three of them this week. There you go. And I, I now know the difference between the three, and I recognize <laughs> them all three as very talented and, and individual actors. But um, that's good. Um. So you want to hear the alternate universe cast for Crimson Tide? Sure. Uh, apparently he was offered a role but turned it down it's not specified of which role but val kilmer hmm. was offered a role and turned it down he later I said definitely could have seen him in um in uh vigo mortensen's role yeah yeah that yeah, yeah that'd be, be interesting yeah him. uh he later said it's one of the decisions he regrets the most yeah i bet it's turning ter- turn down crimson tide captain uh ramsey gene hatman's character apparently Tom Lee Jones passed in the role, uh, as did Al Pacino. Yeah. Uh, I would have liked. I would have liked Jones. Pacino would have been a little bit much. Yeah, and you'll uh, I'll see how you think about this next name. Uh, Warren Beatty was also interested in in the role. No, thank you. But they departed ways at one point. Uh, yeah. Names for for Denzel's character: Brad Pitt, okay. uh, t- Tom Cruise. Yeah, honestly, maybe yeah and then a uh, hot streak at this point feels like andy garcia my boy andy garcia oh yeah here's here's the thing and you and i i don't know that i've brought this up on the podcast but you and i have discussed this about denzel and i'm sure this is going to continue coming up when we talk about denzel but yeah denzel has a fire in his eyes and i think that denzel's real strength is he can he can like put it out or flame it up when he needs to like Denzel can can be like specifically I'm thinking in this scene where there, there's a specific part when when Gene Hackman uh, uh will go and uh, punches him in front of the entire crew 
and it's obviously like breaking rank and all this and 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 he denzel's just kind of looking around at everyone with this indignation that's like you have all betrayed me and you're all like betraying the united states and and your duty and all this stuff and it's just like man you can feel it and um but denzel can also turn it off which is why at the beginning of the movie you see this like family man academic guy and he's just like i'm just going on this ship to like keep this old man in check nothing crazy is going to happen and and you completely believe him because he he can turn it off and on so easily and that's that's a lot of his like amazing performances kind of come from that i mean training day comes from that it's like oh okay here's this cop cool i'm just going along with this cop and then it's like boom all of a sudden this guy's insane Uh, and so someone like tom cruise i love tom cruise tom cruise always got crazy eyes no matter what (laughs) yeah he can't turn it off and, and and it works especially for these like young hotshot characters he's playing in these tony scott movies it, it works but i don't know that it will work for this movie when you see tom cruise get on that submarine you look in his eyes you're like shit's gonna go down <laughs> well it's like tom cruise gotta save the day that's that's yeah. the thing but you like denzel you can look at denzel and be like he does not want to this man does not want to be in this position but if he is in this position he's gonna rise to it I'm yeah. I'm gonna ask you this. Uh, well, I'll ask this later. Yeah, I, I go with Denzel. I agree. It's like I'm thinking like tra- this is the same guy who does Training Day and then does like Devil in a Blue Dress, mm-hmm. like two vastly different characters, but still in ve- like cops or uh, detectives or whatever, very different performances, mm-hmm. and and like six seven years apart, not a big gap mm-hmm. apart, um, but very different. I I think that I think Denzel in the 90s specifically does has a lot of interesting roles of of where you're really seeing him as you're saying turning it on and off yeah i mean you know not not one of his most critically acclaimed movies but like john q is obviously like this just a normal everyday family man yeah but he can he can be pushed to the point where he's going to take this entire hospital hostage like he's you know well, I mean, even even remember the Titans is that way it's like it's like you, <laughs> yeah. you, 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 you you have him being this family guy and then you have him being like it's fun sir it's it's like oh it's fun oh it's fun it's like <laughs> yeah uh, it's fun now yeah. um or just but like yeah, i think I, I really can't think of any other actor especially of, of, of this generation that can turn it on and off as effectively as he can yeah it's um, he, he really is amazing you, the reason i think you and i had that conversation earlier is is starting to see his son be cast in some of the same roles as he was in and i i, I like his son a lot as an actor but i don't think he can turn it off as well as his dad could he's got he he inherited some of his dad's like intensity but it, it kind of feels like he's always kind of at that level and um uh, and so that's why i think you and i specifically brought up like the idea of like what if he played what if he did a devil in a blue dress remake i think yeah was where, that's where what we're talking that about up, actually and i was yeah. like I, I, I don't want to see him in like any of his dad's roles because he's not he's not going to live up to that yeah ability that's fair let me ask you this though we don't usually do this on a director show if you were recasting crimson tide for nowadays who do you cast because hmm. i i have someone i think for oh you've for got denzel's someone? character i would cast denzel as gene hackman yeah what if it's michael b jordan as denzel's character okay michael b jordan as denzel's character and denzel as gene hackman's character Oh yeah, I like that. I would watch that movie <laughs> for sure. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I'd be down with that. Man. Mm. 
Well, I, I want to make a poster just for that. Like just, <laughs> just for Crimson Tide with Miles B. Jordan and Denzel Washington. I'm totally down for that. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 this is one of his best films. Uh, Denzel's too, but also, but specifically Tony Scott. And we'll, and again, we'll reveal the rankings at the end of the, end of the month. But yeah, it's also the one that he received the most Oscar nominations for. It received three Oscar nominations, this movie did, for Best Editing, Best Sound, and Best Sound Editing. Um, and as we said earlier, you're, you're hearing that Hans Zimmer score that's feeling mm-hmm. a lot like Gladiator, a lot like Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, you're seeing a lot of actors before they get big. Like it, it really is this movie. Again, we're in this period where you're seeing these talented people in this film. Um and yeah, I just think it, it it alters the course, I think, of of a little bit in terms of just like the types of movies you see from big actors doing these kind of big action thriller movies um, that you see throughout the 90s. And like, because and, like that thing is like, compare this to Last Boy Scouts. That Last Boy Scout is a action thriller with two big stars. Mm-hmm. And Crimson Tide is a, is a, is a action thriller in a way, but which is too phenomenal actors like that's a this is an acting movie and but still thrilling i mean that's the thing is that this is a very much like it could be a prestige acting movie if you want if you really wanted to make it that but it's mm. more thrilling than last boy scout <laughs> captain i cannot concur repeat my command sir we don't know what this message means our target package could have changed you repeat this order or i'll find somebody who will i don't know you won't sir you're relieved to your position cobb Remove Mr. Hunter from the control room. Get no, Lieutenant sir. Zimmer in here no, right sir. now. No, sir. I do not concur, and I do not recognize your authority to relieve me under command under Navy regulations. Cobb, arrest this man Captain and get him out of here. Under operating procedures governing the release of nuclear weapons, we cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Cobb, what are you waiting for? Sir, this is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, you continue upon this course and insist upon this launch without confirming this message Stop first. Bitch. I will be Chief forced. Chief of the boat. By the rules of precedent, As Captain Commanding Officer command, of the USS Alabama. I order you to place the XO under arrest on the charge of Navy regulations. I say again, I order you to place the XO under arrest on the charge of mutiny. Come, Captain. Please, the XO is right. We can't launch unless he concurs. To the USS Alabama. Rebel-controlled missiles being fueled. Launch codes compromised. Dissonance threatened launch at continental United States. Set DEFCON 2. Immediately launch 10 Trident missile sorties. They're fueling their missiles! We don't have time to fuck around! Sir, I think you need time to think this over. I don't have to think this over! So, that's this era of Tony Scott, these four films. How, so let's talk a little bit briefly about Scott's influence from this era. Like, how? What do you think from these four films the influence he ends up having on the industry. Like, I mean, broadly, I don't know. It's it- yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think, and it was interesting. I, I had never thought of this, this, this way, but uh, I definitely think he's integral in like building out that, like what a Jerry Bruckheimer movie is. Yes. That has, has become something that has branched far beyond Scott as a director. And it's something that, that I've always thought of as like a Jerry Bruckheimer movie, but, but looking back on it now, I definitely think Scott had his fingerprint on what, Bruckheimer would recognize as his bread and butter. Yeah. Um, and you can you can see that continuing throughout in, in this period. But um yeah, I think I think true romance is one of the most interesting pieces for for any kind of director like this who's not a writer. 
is to see somebody, especially early on in Tarantino's career, and be able to watch this and be like, that is Tarantino's voice, but it's also Tony Scott's voice. And and I think that's that's a really incredible piece to be able to come back to that and see like two people of such distinct voices mesh so well. Because so like well. we were talking about when you've got it back to back with Last Boy Scout, you look at that and you say this did not mesh that well. Um, so I, I think that's one of the most interesting things to come out of this this period of his of his work. And again, we talk about the fairy tale aspect of true romance, and you're like, oh, that's there's a fairy tale aspect to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, can mm-hmm. you draw a connection? I don't know. That is kind of, in a weird way, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a romance movie, but with Brad Pitt and DiCaprio's characters. <laughs> um, and also, that movie could have gone a different way as well. Here's the thing. Like, you could have seen, spoiler alert on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'm sorry for those who haven't seen it, but like, you could have one of those guys die at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, and, an, and another occurrence as well. Um, but Tantino does a fairy tale and I wonder, I mean, it's like, that's not a Tony Scott movie, but I wonder if he had a little bit of experience with how Tony does true romance of like the fairy tale ending. Mm-hmm. Is that subconsciously in Tarantino's mind? Yeah. Um, for once upon a time, but here, here, I'm going to stick this. Okay. I'm gonna make a very bold statement here about Tony Scott. Mm-hmm. I think there are four very important filmmakers who still have a lasting impact on our current modern industry in terms of blockbusters and things of that nature. I think there's George Lucas for star Wars. I think there's Steven Spielberg for Jurassic park and jaws and all that. Mm -hmm. I think there's James Cameron with Terminator and Terminator two and aliens. And, and then I would really contemplate and probably put him in there as Tony Scott as that fourth guy. Yeah, because I think Tony does not have as big of a like blockbuster hit as those three filmmakers, but his films had entertainment value. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of coaching tree aspect of it. Um, It's like I kind of say it's like Cameron and Spielberg and Lucas. It's like it's almost like the Golden State Warriors in a way where Mm -hmm. they uh, we're not the ringer, but I'm bringing up sports uh, movie <laughs> stuff. It's like when they win the championship because it's like we changed their whole game around three pointers. And then everyone changes the game because of that one thing. Kind mm. of a replication of what happened. Them trying to duplicate the success of the Warriors. Uh, you can just say like, like an almost way with, with Red Sox and Moneyball or whatever. Um, but with Scott, it's that coaching tree aspect. It's the to bring in Alabama football. I'm sorry. I don't even like doing this, <laughs> but like the idea, like, okay, well, Saban's successful. Let's get people that have worked around him or below him to head up our our stuff, head up our uh, programs. And this yeah. happens in other sports as well. And you could argue that with Tony, is that what does Bruckheimer do after working with Tony Scott? He goes to the field of music videos and commercials and tries to get directors who were in that realm similar to Tony Scott. So what do you who do you get? You get Michael Bay. Michael Bay does Bad Boys. That kind of uh, uh, launches Will Smith in a way uh, to do an Independence Day and then Black, but then also an Emily State with Tony Scott. You then launch Gore Verbinski through Bruckheimer. And what do you mm-hmm. get there? You get Pirates of the Caribbean, which is one of, I think, the most influential Hollywood blockbusters of the early aughts, early 2000s. You have that. You have the Hans Zimmer connection. Um, you have the Denzel Washington stuff of him of him having this prolonged career 
as an action star now. You have Tom Cruise, who's still one of the biggest, if not the biggest action star in the world to this day, that doesn't start, doesn't happen without Top Gun and, and in a way, Days of Thunder. So, like, when you look at all these names, the common trait, and then you have the Tarantino aspect, too, the common trait between all these people, it feels like, is that it all goes back to Tony Scott. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I, and like I said, I, that might not have been a concept that I would have appreciated before the, the, doing this episode. But like I said, watching this, it makes it definitely clear what an influence Scott had on Bruckheimer. And, and I think it is. Yeah, I think you absolutely have to acknowledge what an influence Bruckheimer has had on, on modern action. And, and again, even uh, like to go with things like Con Air or Con Air, The Rock, Armageddon, these all feel like movies that like in a different world, Tony Scott wasn't available to someone else. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very apparent. And again, those are all movies that have like these big kind of cast. Again, that's again being created a little bit in this these Tony Scott True Romance Crimson Tide era. So mm-hmm. that's my premise I want, we kind of mentioned it early on in that first episode we did, but I really want to hammer it home now after I watch these four movies. <laughs> and I'm just like, man, I don't know what the, like, and, and, and for good or bad, I don't miss it. It could be a negative way. It could be a positive way of how you take this. Cause, cause people, again, you have these formulaic movies uh, that would come after this. They're trying to be copies of these kind of eras. So like it's, it is, it can be a negative thing as well, but I think, when I look at those four names on the board, I see them all having a lasting influence. And he is the one that I feel gets the least amount of credit yep. for yep. having that. And that's why we do the show guys. That's why we do. This. <laughs> um, so anything else you want to say about Tony Scott's period, this era, this is a very strong period. It's I'll a very strong period. To see how this factors in to our final rankings. I agree. Uh, and so the preview for next episode, a very different era. This is going to be an interesting era because I've only seen two of these films in this era. Uh, by, but we have The Fan starring Robert De Niro and Wesley Snipes. We have Enemy of the State starring Will Smith and Gene Hackman returning. Uh, then you also have Spy Game starring Robert Redford and a returning Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And then the finale of next week, not the finale of the, the series, but the finale of next week is Man on Fire with denzel washington so gonna be an interesting week next yep. week there's some I'm excited I, I think there's some big hits and there's some big misses we'll discuss uh <laughs> next week so that's all we have for you this week make sure you subscribe to the nation podcast on apple podcast spotify stitcher or wherever your podcast and if you haven't already make sure you write us review on whatever platform you listen to the show on yeah guys any uh any feedback we can get um spread the word let other people know let us know what you like let us know what you want to hear we uh, we really truly love hearing back from anybody. We've been getting some some really cool feedback lately, and um, you know, energizes us. I, we're not. It does. We don't we don't we don't like shouting out into the void necessarily. So you know, let us know what you think. We like to know if you're like if you're like into the movies we're talking about. If you like, oh, I never heard of that movie and I watched it and loved it. Yeah, and if you think I had an absolutely bad take, I love to hear that. <laughs> Yeah, it happens. Same here. If you if you uh, if you don't like my Days of Thunder take, that's fine. Go ahead and tell me. Um, <laughs> and if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also message us there, talk to us there. We like hearing from you guys. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. <laughs>